Now, the question we're going to be considering today is, what is the future of the church? Does it have one? If so, what is it going to be like? What state will the church, not just our church, but the church more generally, what state will it be in as we come out of lockdown? Some of you will have read reports about how the national church, the Church of England, of which we belong, has been hit hard by COVID-19. Financial pressures, uh, church closures, uh, attendance dropping, and some congregations not knowing if they will even have a building to come back to. Pre-COVID, there seemed to be an increasing hostility towards the church in this country, whereby a generation or so ago, people would think of the church as, as a force for good. But now, many see it as a force for bad, consider it dangerous. Last week, we heard about the awful reports of abuse within the wider evangelical church and the abuse of power in leadership positions. And you might be thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, what is the implication of that for the evangelical constituency? So here is our question. What is, what does the future hold for the church? Is there any hope? Where do we turn? What confidence can we have for the church in this country across the world? And that is what chapters 12 to 14 of Zechariah, this last part of the prophecy is all about. But let me say that chapter 12 is a notoriously difficult passage to interpret, uh, not least because many commentators are unsure as to what event exactly it is looking forward to. And so right up front, I want to just give a brief explanation of how I'm going to interpret and why, and I'd love you to email me afterwards if you want. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts. But you may have picked up in the reading that this phrase, on that day, keeps on coming up. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 11. And actually 16 times in these final three chapters, on that day, which instinctively you would think is a single 24-hour day. But we know from the New Testament, you know, here's my interpretive key, um, that that day that this is looking forward to is not just the day of Jesus' first coming in salvation, nor is it just the day of Jesus' second coming in judgment, but it is the entire day or time period between Jesus' first and second coming. Let me give you just two New Testament references uh, to support that. First one comes from our New Testament reading that we just heard read out. John 19, verse 36, speaking of Jesus' death at his first coming. And we just heard read, these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. They will look on the one they have pierced. Straight from verse 10 of our passage today. But then also, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Revelation, the last book of the Bible, speaking of Jesus' second coming, and we read there, look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Again, quoting from this same verse, from Zechariah chapter 12. First, second, this is not 
a single day. I put it to you, I suggest that what we see here is a prophecy about the entire church age between Jesus' first and second coming. You want to know what the future of the church is? Here it is. And in chapter 12, we see two key things. It's going to be a day of strength and a day of mourning. So let's look at each of them in turn. First, a day of strength. Because in verses 1 to 9, this prophecy speaks of a future where God's people, the Jerusalem, picture of the church, is going to be immovable, untouchable. They're going to have this immense power and strength coursing through them from the least to the greatest. And people will say of them, verse 5, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. So we can see right up front, this is where the strength comes from. Not their physical prowess, not their mental fortitude, not their own willpower. Come on, Mark, I can do this. This is a strength from the Lord. This is a strength from the Lord Almighty being your God. Imagine just for a moment having Lionel Messi on your five-a-side football team in a friendly match outside. You would obviously feel invincible. Imagine you had Albert Einstein in your maths quiz team at school, at university. You would feel unbeatable, wouldn't you? Imagine then what it must be like to have the Lord Almighty on your side. And in case we forget, we don't know what this Lord Almighty is like. Just look at verse 1. This is how this, this final prophecy begins. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the church, and who forms the human spirit within a person. This is the Lord Almighty. This is the, the one promising his people strength, the one with all strength who created the whole universe out of nothing. The one who breathes life into your spirit in the womb of your mother. The one who gave Messi his feet, the one who gave Einstein his brains. This is the Lord Almighty. And if this God is for you, who can be against you? And in verses 2 to 4, the answer comes back, well, no one. Verse 2, I'm going to make Jerusalem, God's people, a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Verse 3, on that day, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. Verse 4, I will keep a watchful eye over Judah. Here is God promising yet again in this book to be the ultimate protection of his people. And here the image that is given for the church is this image of an immovable rock. My wife Jo gave me some weights 
for my last birthday. I think she was getting a little bit concerned by the middle-aged spread and the lack of activity during lockdown. And hey, you might find these helpful, love. Yeah, thanks very much. Anyhow, one of the weights was a 20-kilogram uh, kettle weight. Is that what it's called? I don't really know much to about them. Kettlebell. And um, I have to say it's really good fun watching my kids um, try to pick this kettlebell up, you know, with all their might and you know, with the red face and sort of muscles popping, and the weight does not move at all. In fact, just this past week, my youngest tried to pick it up and fell over. Oh, someone says here. This description of this weightiness, of this immovability, that is the picture God is giving here for the church. And so look, I know the church can seem weak at times, vulnerable, compromised, but that is only because the Lord loves to discipline his people, disciplines those he loves, refines his church, removes abusive leadership. But the church stands right at the heart of God's plans and purposes for the whole universe, the church is the very body of Christ, his son. The church is here to stay. There's been a Christian presence right here on this site for 1,000 years. And I imagine there will continue to be so for the next 1,000 years. The fierce persecution of the Roman armies in the first century to destroy the church actually led to the explosive growth of the church across the Mediterranean and has led to that continual growth around the world today. Do you know where the church is growing fastest right now in the world? It is Iran an underground, persecuted Christian movement in a country known for radical Islamic terrorism. If God is for us, who can be against us? Not sin, it's paid for. Not death, Jesus rose from the death. Not the devil, Jesus has defeated it. Him. The church is invincible. The church is immovable. The church is defeatable. Not because of us but because the Lord Almighty is our God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The New Testament book of Romans asks. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see just how secure ultimately you are if you belong to the church? And do you see just what a dangerous position you are in if you set yourself up against the church? The people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. And you know what? There's more. 
There's more in verses 6 to 8. There's also the inner strength that God promises to give his people. On that day, verse 6, I will make the clans of Judah like a brazier in a woodpile, like hot coals in a woodpile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume all the surrounding peoples, right and left, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. I remember being at a firework party um, years ago, and one of my friends shoved one of the fireworks too much into the ground. And so as it sort of lit, it sort of started flapping around and it couldn't take off and it didn't get enough lift. And so it went on this quite short, failed flight, sort of up at the wrong angle and then straight back down over the neighbor's fence and onto his prized bush tree. And the whole thing just went up in flames in a matter of seconds. Now, lots of groveling you know, then ensued, but I have to say, the speed of consumption of this tree by this fire was something to behold. And this is this inner fire, this sort of strength and power is what it, God is promising his people here. Now, viewing this passage from the New Testament, that's an interpretive key. I think it is pretty hard not to think of Acts chapter 2 the day of Pentecost, when God sends his Holy Spirit down on the embryonic church. And what did the people see? Flames of fire. And it consumed the disciples' fear, and they started preaching and speaking of Jesus with such courage and boldness. And the surrounding peoples in Jerusalem at that time were not literally consumed but they had their wrong beliefs about God and Jesus consumed. And their wrong living was consumed and their guilt of sin was burnt up as they sought forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And their fear of death was destroyed as they put their trust in Jesus risen from the dead. And immediately, just like that, 3,000 people were added to the church that day. Now that is the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the inner fire that is being prophesied here. The Lord God Almighty. Not just amongst his people, in his people, living in them. By his Holy Spirit. I pray that you would know, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Ephesus. I pray that you would know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. The same power that rose Christ from the dead, the same power that is at work in you. Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Do you long for more power to resist temptation and to live for Christ? Do you long for more boldness to speak up for Jesus Christ and not to live in fear? Do you long for more spiritual strength to be a more loving friend, a more loving spouse, a more loving parent, a more loving colleague? Don't we all? That power is already available to us. If we trust in Jesus Christ, if we belong to the church, which has the age of the Spirit upon her.
And in verses 7 to 9, no one is left out. So that, verse 8, the feeblest among them, among God's people, will be like David. King David, the anointed one, who had the Spirit of God come upon him in power. Now it is true for every Christian believer. No one spiritually stronger than you. Now, at this point, it might well beg the question, well, okay, I mean, I feel pretty weak as a Christian, pretty vulnerable, compromised at times. How do I get hold of this power? How do I access it? How do I let this inner fire do its consuming work in my heart? How do I live this life of spiritual strength? Well, let's move on secondly to verses 10 to 14 and the day of mourning. This counterintuitively is how the spiritual strength is going to come about, through mourning. How does that work? Well, as we mourn over our sin, as we turn to the Lord, the one who can truly help us. Verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns an only child and grieves bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Now first, just by way of a side point, notice here the hints already in the Old Testament of a plurality of persons within the Godhead. We have the spirit of grace being poured out on God's people. We have God the Father speaking. And then we have the speaker, me, being pierced, which we know from those two New Testament references at the start, refer to Jesus Christ. A prophecy that has to be fulfilled by a person, a man, but a prophecy that we know ultimately is God coming to earth, the incarnate word, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit absolutely committed to save and strengthen his people. But look how this strengthening comes about through mourning. And there's a lot of mourning in these five verses. Mourn, mourns, grieve, grieves, weeping, weeping. And then each clan mourns, 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 mourns. Why so much focus on mourning? Because God always desires our hearts. Do you remember all the way back to chapter one? How this prophecy started? The main command return to me. Not just return to Jerusalem. I don't want you just going through the motions, coming back here, building the temple. As good as that is, I want you to return to me. To see the effect that your sin has on your relationship with me. Not just the effect your sin has on you. Return to me, says the Lord. And mourning is a surefire way of showing the genuineness of that repentance. When I wrong Joe, um, action is certainly called for, right? An apology, I'm sorry, Joe. Some flowers, perhaps. A change of behavior. But you know, you can do all those things and still not really mean it inside. But a genuine sorrow from the heart well, that really shows Joe that I mean business. That I know how much this has hurt her. The damage it has done. And you know, some of the most transformative moments in our marriage 
who have been with tears of genuine remorse. That is what God is promising here, a day of genuine heartfelt repentance, a day of godly sorrow over sin and how it grieves God, a day of healing and restoration and transformation in our relationship with him, such that he's at work in us, and then that spiritual strength comes. Now, I know we all express our emotions differently. Totally fine, totally understandable. God has made each of us in our own unique way. But we do all have hearts, and genuine repentance always flows from the heart. And so what is this morning going to look like for you? And I imagine the challenge for most of us is just the sheer intensity of the mourning described here. Do you see it? They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. They will grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Now I can't even begin to imagine the pain, the heartache that must be felt. <laughs> if, well, if anything happened to one of my four children, to, to grieve the loss of your child, I imagine that is something, do you ever get over that? Can I say that about my sin? Though I grieve my sin in a similar way. Do you? That is the intensity being shown here. And it's not just for the emotionally demonstrative. Verses 12 to 14 are absolutely clear. This is for everyone, every clan, every person in the clan. Now, that doesn't mean we need to like work ourselves up into some like emotional frenzy, like a skilled actor in a moving scene or some professional mourner, that would be fake, that would be insincere. But how does it come? It comes from looking on me, the one they have pierced. Here's the key point. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, AD 33, just outside Jerusalem, he was dying for you and for me. Pierced for our transgressions, the prophet Isaiah says. Crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. You know how horrific it is when you see it. When anyone's suffering, you see those images of children starving in Africa. It moves you. Their pain, their suffering, the horror of their plight. How much worse if their suffering was due to you? It is our sin that nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. Our selfishness, our apathy, our outright rebellion towards him. That's what ripped him to shreds on the cross, the worst form of punishment ever devised by human beings, worse than that, being torn from the eternal loving embrace of his father. What does Jesus say to us, even though we treat him this way? What does he say on the cross? Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. I've come to die for you. I've come to suffer for you. I'm going to deal with the sin in your heart. I'm going to deal with the evil out there. I'm going to raise, rise from the dead. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm coming back for you. I love you. Does that get you? Does that move you at all in your heart? And yet even now, even as you hear those words, we still need the spirit of grace and supplication to really believe this, to grasp this, to mourn over, to mourn what we have done to God. Come to him for the forgiveness we need and the strength of his spirit to change. 
How does this all work out practically? Lord, my tendency to gossip, to envy, to shading the truth, to grandstanding. You know what, Lord? I don't mourn over it as I should. You know what? Secretly, I quite like it. That's why I do it. Please forgive me. Please pour out your spirit on me. Please move my heart. Help me to hate what you hate. Help me to see the horror of this sin. Please help me to look upon Jesus and see what he went through to pay for it and deal with it. And so please move me to have a godly sorrow, to seek your mercy, to experience a fresh your forgiveness and to rely on your power and strength to change. Today is giving day. And perhaps you are well aware of your own lack of generosity, your love of money. Lord, please pour out on me right now a spirit of grace and supplication so that I can see the selfishness of my own heart, how horrific an idol of money is to you when everything I have comes from you. You made me. You breathe life into my spirit. I'm just a steward of it all. Help me, please, to look upon Jesus Christ who left the security and riches of heaven to give it all up for me on the cross, the rich becoming poor, so that now me, spiritually poor, may become eternally rich in you. Melt my heart, Lord. I can't do it myself. Melt my, my heart by your generosity that I may show that same generosity to others. We're in a period of Lent right now, a time when we reflect on those areas of our lives that the Holy Spirit is highlighting for change. Can I encourage you to take advantage of that? To take the time to reflect before God, bring those sins that you know the Spirit's height to the cross. Feel the weight of each sin. Look upon Jesus who died for that sin and let him lead you towards a godly sorrow, a heartfelt repentance, genuine. Look, it might make me feel weak as we think, consider our sin and vulnerable and compromised. But insofar as that moves you to God, so you mourn over what you've done and you seek forgiveness, that is where strength and power comes. And it's often when we are weakest in ourselves that we are actually strongest in the Lord. Let me close with some words from an Isaac Watts hymn. My sins, my hateful, cruel sins, his chief tormentors were. Each of my crimes became a nail and unbelief the spear. T'was you that pulled the vengeance down upon his guiltless head. Break, break my heart, oh, burst mine eyes and let my sorrows bleed. That is how we're going to be strong. That is how the church is going to be strong. So let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for all that you're continuing to show us from the book of Zechariah and this final prophecy. You know, chapter 12 we just looked at. Thank you for this promise of a day of strength, a day of mourning, a day and age we live in now, the age of the church with the power of the Spirit at work in us. So please, Father, Move us, pour out your spirit of grace and supplication upon us 
to look upon Jesus, to mourn over our sin, and to rely on you and your forgiveness and your strength and power to change. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.